Amy Alperlaff. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guests today are Dr. Cecilia Espinosa, Associate Professor at Lehman College, and Dr. Laura Asensi Moreno, Associate Professor at Brooklyn College. They are co-authors of Rooted in Strength, Using Translanguaging to Grow Multilingual Readers and Writers. Welcome, Cecilia and Laura. Thank you so much for having us, John and Amy. Yes, John and Amy, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. What is translanguaging? So translanguaging is the languaging practices that bilinguals and multilingual people use as the norm. It exists in communities. It is the way in which bilingual or multilingual people use language, communicate, use it for constructing meaning. It is really the norm in multilingual communities. Laura, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I just want to build off what Cecilia said. Even though it has this very fancy term, it really is is describing the normal practices of bilingual people when they pull from all of their experiences. We like to talk about uh, language as a verb. So we say languaging. When people language in different environments with different types of people throughout time, language emerges. And that language is not constrained by definitions of name language, it develops. And so we like to think of translanguaging as the expression of this emerging and developing language. And uh, yeah, it's always developing. And why did you write a book about translanguaging now? So um, Laura and I have been have worked with schools and have been teachers for a long time. Now we're teacher educators, but our careers started as teacher assistants. Then we became bilingual teachers. And our work has always been with bilingual students. But often the books that we read for our professional development and books that we loved, for example, Donald Graves books, um, all those books maybe mentioned by emerging bilingual children on the, in the corner. So they said for, and they called them at that time, English language learners. So we wanted to create a text that would center emerging bilinguals in classrooms, in their sort of uh, work with, as they're learning, as they're developing as readers and writers. Laura, you want to add? Yeah, we started, uh, like Cecilia said, many years ago, and we were both involved in a very special and I think important project called CUNY NICEB, which stands for City University of New York, New York State Initiative on Emergent Bilinguals. And in that project, which was led by Ofelia Garcia, Kate Menken, and Ophelia, uh, Ricardo Ortegui, we were associate investigators. And the project had really two main goals, to work with schools and districts to understand bilingualism as a resource and really thinking about the linguistic ecology of schools. And we did a lot of deep and extended work with schools to to develop these principles and develop capacity in the schools. And we noticed over the years that started in 2012, that a lot of teachers began to hear about translanguaging, but there were a lot of misconceptions. So people thinking that translanguaging is translating or translanguaging is code switching. And I think this book uh, came out in the world because Cecilia and I thought that now was the time to kind of 
present a clarification and a journey for teachers into understanding how translanguaging can not only be in a concept or an idea that is interesting and cool, but actually can take root in your classroom and can be something that you understand on a day-to-day basis when you do read-alouds or guided reading, shared reading, writing. And we thought that lots of teachers may have been interested in the idea, but didn't really have kind of the stepping stones to understand, well, what does this mean for me and my students? So I think that's why we wrote the book and we wrote it this moment of time. Yeah, and and I think that idea that while there were other texts, there wasn't anything like this, where we really started from the beginning, centering on um, multilingual students from a perspective of strength, where we centered everything in the book around what they bring to the classroom, um, all the wonderful languaging resources, their strengths, their funds of knowledge. So... Ophelia Garcia one day said to us, I see a book in here when we presented to her our translanguaging guide, Pedagogy for Writing. And from then on, the idea of really creating this text that would be a text that teachers could use to talk with one another, to think about their classroom practices as we provided ideas for them. I'd like to mention one last thing. We have a lot to say about that question. (laughs) Um, So we have wonderful colleagues that have come out of CUNY NICEB and they've produced books as well that are just fantastic. Uh, Kate Seltzer and Ophelia Garcia and Susana Johnson wrote The Translanguaging Classroom and our colegas eh, Carla España and Luz Yadira Herrera wrote En Comunidad. And we found that this book really was a little bit different and maybe like a sister companion book in that it really looks at the younger grades. Cecilia and I both began our teaching career in early childhood and the early childhood section of elementary, you know, pre-K, kindergarten, first and second. And a lot of the books on translanguaging are really kind of focused on texts and experiences that are reflective of older children, perhaps after third grade, fifth grade, high school. And while our book is really for the whole span of elementary school, we really saw that there was a gap in really looking at what, how does the beginning of literacy look like through a translanguaging lens? And and in this case, we mean starting in kindergarten. Um, Certainly there's a future text that we wanna write that will look at younger kids. That's exciting. You've described translanguaging as transformative. Why? Lara, you want to start? <laughs> so um, translanguaging, I should start a little, I'm going to rewind. Translanguaging, Amy, when you asked that question, one of the things I was thinking about was, should I talk about translanguaging theory and pedagogy? And I didn't, but now is the perfect time to do that. So we can think about translanguaging in many ways, but one is, Translanguaging theory, which is the theory that describes how students language. And a lot of people are exposed to the theory that there's one linguistic repertoire and students bring in their semiotic and social resources when they're making meaning of anything. Um, And then there's translanguaging pedagogy, which is how the teacher translates or develops or molds, shapes 
translanguage theory to be classroom practice. And translanguaging is transformative because it really is centered on the person. So when we're centering uh, a theory of language on the person, it's in contrast to how language has typically or traditionally been thought of. For so many years, we've thought about language in the classroom as being something that we bring to students or that we teach students. And so we think about, you know, teaching vocabulary, think, teaching phrases, having children learn language. And we can often think about academic language too. So we're bringing language to students rather than already accepting and acknowledging the language that they have. And I think that is the critical piece where we're changing teachers, I guess, worldview to think about that the language practices that students have is already enough. And it's transformative because of that relationship. You know, in progressive schools, we're always playing and grappling with how do we change the relationship between students and teachers? And I think that that is at the core of translanguaging as well. That we're really thinking, you know, the teacher is not the person who embodies language and uh, distinct language practices, but that there's a negotiation, there's a relationship between the language practices of the students and of the teacher, and there's some negotiation. So we're really kind of pushing the teacher-student relationship and also thinking, lastly, this is the last thing I'm gonna say, about you know what is reading and what is writing if we put students' language practices at the center? Because those student language practices are embodied and they embody certain racial, ethnic, and gendered identities that need to be brought into the classroom. I think also um, it's transformative because it shifts the perspective of the school, of the classroom teacher, of the child themselves and of the family from a perspective of deficit to a perspective of strength. So um, the teacher then asks, what happens if I invite the whole child into the classroom? And by that, we mean that child with their entire linguistic repertoire to the classroom. And when that happens, then the family's ways of knowing are also part of the classroom. As I mentioned before, translanguaging exists in communities, but often schools have rigid separations of how language is used. So translanguaging also opens up the walls that exist between the school and the community. Um, so it's transformative in many, many ways. It also creates opportunities for young children, for any person who's translanguaging, to really construct meaning at deeper levels than what they could say if they were just using their new language, for example. I, th I think that my next question is perhaps implied in what you've just been saying, but you've said that normalizing multi-language literacy development is an equity issue. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. For so long, reading and writing has been equated with English proficiency, but we know that reading and writing go beyond language. So for example, as a reader, I uh, can read in Spanish and English and Italian. Italian is my weakest language. If I were to read and I have short stories in Italian, I can understand them. But if someone were to ask me to have a long conversation about them, I could do it in Spanish or in English. But my Italian is so emergent 
that I would not be able to sustain a deep conversation about the stories that I read and enjoyed and understood. So that's just an example that reading really goes beyond language. And when we conceive of something like reading and writing, and these are like foundational skills. I became a teacher because Ferrari said that teaching reading could revolutionize the world, basically. If we see reading as reading in English or proficiency, then we are creating a very inequitable learning environment for multilingual students because we are not acknowledging the full span and range of knowledge that students possess and can possess to understand and make meaning of text. So we think it's critical that in this world, we need to start including multilingualism and the aspects of multilingualism throughout reading and writing, and for that matter, any content area. And and I'm going to add, I think, um, the question of what limiting beliefs that we're having if we are only privileging monolingualism in the end, right? We're asking then only half of the child to come into the classroom. Maybe um, we're not providing access to the parents to support their children at home. So if they can do it in the home language, it certainly provides many possibilities for providing equity for the child in terms of education, in terms of the qualities of conversations, but also bilingual people is what the people is what the world needs. The 21st century really needs uh, people who can um, tap on their language and practices, I would say like hour by hour or minute by minute. Lastly, I'd like to add, you know, there are many different people in the classroom and we're talking about advocating for the emergent bilinguals or students who use two or more languages in their daily lives, but also for students who are not multilingual, being in a multilingual environment can recast multilingual identities for them, which I think is really important. This is a little different, but related. In my literacy class at Brooklyn College this year, we talked a little, a lot throughout the semester about neurodiversity. And students recently said to me, oh, I only thought about diversity in terms of race and ethnicity and gender. I never thought about diversity in terms of neurodiversity and the ways that people think differently. And we hope that, you know, having multilingual environments also expands how students, all students think about diversity, that language identities are part of your core identity and that people use and experience language differently. And that involves a lot of layers throughout the years. Yeah, and um, Laura, that um, reminds me something that we discussed a lot in CUNY NYSA when we work with Ophelia Garcia. And it was the issue of the importance of thinking about labels. So when we call somebody English language learner versus when we t- call somebody an emergent bilingual, which is a term filled with possibilities. And at the core of that, at the core of a label, is certainly an issue about equity and how a child enters the school. The last thing I'm going to say is recently at a conference, I found a term that I actually was okay with, which is designated L's. So people often call emergent bilinguals L's, English language learners, but the idea of designated English language learners means that you're acknowledging that there is a test or proficiency exam used by a district 
to classify a group of students, but you're not calling them that yourself. You're calling them that that's the way they were designated. And I thought that that was an interesting way of acknowledging the proficiency exams that school districts use as opposed to emergent bilinguals, which is a larger group of students. And, and the sad part about the English language learners is that it just focuses on what they don't have yet. Mm-hmm. When you use the term emergent, are you speaking about a process? So I was a little confused because you, Laura, used the term emergent to describe your proficiency in Italian. And I don't know if that means that you intend to go further or if emergent is just means not fluent, like lack of fluency. That's such a great catch. Because when I said it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have used that term then. Um, you know, in our book, we, we kind of try to define that emergent is used in so many ways because we have emergent readers, developing readers, emergent bilinguals. We're really referring to that emergence as developing things that emerge from being bilingual. So it's not only that they're in a process, but they're also, there's a process of creation. Emergent bilinguals, I think, you know, it was developed by uh, Ophelia, Kleifgen, and Falke in, I think, 2008. It was really early on. And they chose, I think, the word emergent to show that language is always developing, Mm -hmm. that there's not an end point. And when I call myself emergent Italian, I guess I do imagine myself learning more and more. And I'm thinking also that we're all emergent, let's say bilinguals in different ways. So for example, if you ask me to read a magazine about cars in English, I am an emergent bilingual in, in that topic, right? But maybe not so much in thinking about working with first grade students in reading and writing. So we all sort of have those spaces where we where our language is still developing and emerging, as Laura suggested. How do you recommend that phonemic awareness and phonics be integrated into reading for emergent bilinguals? So this is a huge topic, and it is, it is especially become even more important given that the new schools chancellor in New York City announced mandated phonics program for all New York City children. Um, I take an approach where I think about how is the monolingualism embedded in a phonics program going to support emergent bilinguals in their development of phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, and all those early literacy skills. So obviously, all beginning readers, except those that are deaf, I think, need to develop beginning reading skills that are based on sounds. But how does that process differ for emergent bilinguals? In many ways. If you think about an emergent bilingual who does not know very much English, and you're teaching them letter sounds in English, then you're really uh, coming against an equity issue because you're not creating an appropriate environment for them to learn decoding. So emergent bilinguals, I believe, need phonics, phonemic awareness in ways that are multisensory and multilingual. 
So for example, asking children about the letters that they know. I know Cecilia always talks and I'll get, you know, about nursery rhymes and starting from where they know the knowledge that they know about texts. So I, I really think we need to think about this policy in a way that centers emergent bilinguals letter and sound knowledge rather than thinking about, okay, this is gonna be like this, the thing that saves them because what we're doing is creating a policy then then will wipe out opportunities for emergent bilinguals to learn in their home languages. And this idea that really good teachers have never abandoned phonics instruction, but they have always thought about how to teach it. So one of the ways certainly is through nursery rhymes, because it provides the young reader access to rich meaning. And so we start with rich meaning, and then we go to the small parts of the language. And then we come back to the larger text, to the song, to the chant, so that the students understand why it is that they're studying what they're studying, right? Otherwise, what could end up happening is that we're testing them in very um, small pieces of language without really asking the question of what does it mean to support readers in this classroom, right? How am I supporting a child who loves dinosaurs to become a really strong reader through also that those interests and passions that children have? And I think that throughout our book, we talk a lot about that, a lot about sort of how complex reading is and how it isn't really about going um, there isn't like one way of doing it, but it is about just like as we're talking about translanguaging, paying attention to how children language, that we need to pay attention to the readers in our classroom to think about how it is that we're going to support them best. And I think this gets to a core idea within our book is that teachers are intellectuals. Teachers are creators of meaning. When you give teachers a phonics program, for example, and you ask them to implement it, you're really robbing the opportunity for creativity and intellectual challenge to understand how can I teach decoding skills, phonics, phonemic awareness, letter awareness, et cetera, to my specific group of students. And I think that's what Susan and I advocate for. We do believe in the teaching of early literacy skills, However, of course, and I think, you know, the science of reading people agree with us, it should not be a major chunk of the day. It should be 15 to 20 minutes. It's not a huge thing. But the way we do it with emergent bilinguals needs to honor the language practices that they already possess and that of their families. And, and I think a reminder also that the children that do really well with isolated exercises in schools are the children who have been read a lot. So that we need to make sure that we provide that in our classrooms, a lot of access to a variety of texts and lots of very rich experiences so that they can develop that identity about what it means to be a reader and why do readers read? The last thing, I keep on the last thing. And there's, <laughs> there's so much complexity in all the questions that you're asking. Thank you so much is we also acknowledge that children have different needs. For example, my son needs more, when he was little, needed more reading instruction, direct explicit reading instruction than perhaps others because of a language-related disability. So not everyone needs the same thing, but we emphasize 
that all emergent bilinguals need a multilingual approach. So some children may need 10, 15 minutes, some children may need nothing. How can we use translanguaging to work with native English speaking students who speak so-called non-standard English? Well, Amy, translanguaging certainly can be used within a name language. So for example, in one of the ways that I think about with translanguaging is first this idea that everybody's languaging practices are are the norm for the particular community. And that this idea of the standardization of language is something that has been socially constructed. But within English, for example, something that I would do in a classroom is to think about the different ways of saying elevator, for example. It's possible that in particular regions of the United States, they say elevator in a different way. And in England, they may say it in a particular way. In New Zealand, they may say it in a particular way. So how do we sort of help the children see that there is such richness within the diversity of a language? And in our text, we have an example about in Spanish, no? But, but Spanish also has sort of similar connotations in sort of the fiction that there is a standard language. But we use the word kite or papalote or cometa to think about what are the different ways in which people refer to as cometa in different countries. So there's chiringa, uh, there's all these different ways like papalote. And, and actually, as Lara and I were investigating more about languages, we learned that some of the papalote, for example, comes from the Nahuatl. So it isn't even in Spanish. So this idea that languages really are living and changing and shifting and that we're appropriating other people's languaging practices as time happens as, and as encounters happen. So I think it helps children to see that there is richness in diversity of language and it demystifies the idea of a standard language. Sorry. Absolutely. I think, again, building off Cecilia, is that there is this idea that translanguaging really, one of the main goals is for it to help teachers understand how language is associated with power and how systems ascribe power differentially based on people's language use and personhood, their identities. And so when we think about users of different types of Englishes, for example, in our book, we mentioned New Yorkese, you know, I grew up in New York in the 70s and 80s and there's lots of people who use English in a way that I hear and I'm like wow that really is like Queens (laughs) that's really like Queens Uh, I don't know if I sound like that but (laughs) since I'm from Queens but I can tell where someone is from based on how they sound and I also can even tell their age almost based on how they sound and there's Chicano English there's Black vernacular English there's tons of English but the English that is revered is a, is what you know people term call like a standardized English does that doesn't sound like you come from Queens in the 1980s. It doesn't sound like you come from the Bronx. It sounds like you're a newscaster. So I think that translanguaging has enormous potential for students who speak different dialects of English because again, as we said earlier, it says all languaging 
is equal. So it's really challenging this notion that there's a deficit to be fixed, that uh, students don't know how to speak, they don't know how to write, we have to teach them how to speak. It really kind of shifts this whole thing, not only for students who are multilingual, but students who, you know, speak different dialects. And obviously, we don't have to get into this, but this has been really highly developed by our colleagues, Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa in their theory of racial linguistics. But we can do this in a number of ways in classrooms. There, for example, Jason Reynolds, his beautiful books uh, have so much black vernacular English that can be featured in when we talk about how is English used in this book? And those types of discussions are important. And I'm just mentioning Jason Reynolds, but there's a ton of authors that really feature the languages from different parts of where they live, their context. And, and I think as Laura mentioned, even the question about how languages are valued is an important question to work with the children in the classroom, right? And to say, why do you think this is happening? What is happening here on one side? And on the other side, as Laura said, within the children's literature to help the children see the value of using authentic language and the way people speak and the richness that exists in that. Translanguaging may involve children translating for the benefit of a fellow student. How do you work with a child who's the only student in the class who speaks a particular language? I, I can answer that. Sure. So many years ago now, um, my colleague Sarah Vogel and I did a project in Chinatown. And I'll tell a little story about it. We were working with, uh, in a wonderful school, it was incredible. The principal was incredible. The teachers were so innovative. But we ran into a problem, which was one of the social studies teachers was like, was said, I don't know what to do with this student. There must be something wrong with him. He had just come from China and he was just stumped and he thought there was something wrong with this child. And we said, well, let us work with him and figure it out. What we did, we interviewed, I have a graduate student who is Chinese speaker. So I brought him in and we interviewed the child and we found out a number of things from him. He had been living with a grandmother in China while his parents were in the US. He had spent a long time away from them. He was you know, brought to the US and met his parents after a long separation. And so he was confused and startled as anyone would be. So what, one of the things we did was use machine translation. We used Google Translate. And we used Google Translate in a number of ways. He, we gave him tasks that were related to the tasks that his social studies and English teacher were doing. For example, they were reading a novel by Sherman Alexie. We went to the library in the neighborhood in Chinatown and we found that book and we brought it to the classroom so he could read in Chinese while the rest of the class was reading in English. Then this teacher would give prompts. He would write his responses in Chinese and he discovered a number of things through Google Translate. He discovered that his translation was not as good if he plugged in the whole chunk of Chinese and it spit out a translation in English. He realized that if you 
put in small chunks of Chinese that English is more understandable. And so he was gaining a lot of skills, metacognitively thinking about machine translation. So looking at the output and reading it and kind of fixing it based on what he knew of English. And by the end of the year, the teacher was like, wow, I thought there was something wrong with this kid. And he is absolutely brilliant. So sometimes we don't know how to deal with students who may speak one language and we don't know that language. I think we're living in an incredible time of opportunity where tools like Google Translate are not going to you know, save the day, but they play an enormous role within the, our ability to work with them, with children. And I would add, for example, all the work that the teacher can do with the parents by inviting the parents into the classroom to share a song, to learn a game, to share food. And then this idea also of audio taping a story for the child to listen to in the classroom, because the child, if the child is very young, the child's going to be in this English environment, which is exhausting to be in a the whole day in another language, you know, hearing another language. So a little space for the child to hear the voice of the parent, but maybe through story. And now with technology, we can certainly do that. I think that is an um, when the teacher invites the parent into the classroom, it positions the teacher as a learner, as interested in the funds of knowledge that the family brings. And then something else that could be done is also see if in the school or in the district or in the community, there is a family that can provide support, right? So maybe the family that just came into the school is not too bilingual yet, but maybe there's another bilingual family who speaks Albanian who can support the child. So in that sense, to be very creative and resourceful and to create an environment in the classroom of curiosity, towards the language and practices of the family. So a final question. You discuss assessment in your book. How do you distinguish between data-driven and student-driven assessment? So go ahead. You want yeah, to start it? I was muted because there was mm-hmm. so much noise previously coming from that window. So the question is about gated assessment versus student-driven assessment. In our book, we really focus on formative student-driven assessment because we believe that teachers have enormous agency when they think about assessment as a curricular space, as a place where they can exert agency and their knowledge about students. The object of assessment is really to understand the child and to understand the, as I often say, the full span of their knowledge. And so, your term gated driven assessments, I would say are assessments that are uh, mandated by schools or school systems that really is about monitoring and progress. So when we monitor children, that's a completely different object. And I, my personal belief is that, you know, those large scale assessments, and sometimes they're formative assessments too, are not meant to really drive instruction. They're really kind of a routine meant to show kind of a pulse on a class or a a school building or a district. We shouldn't use that data to really look at children. You know, I'm someone who believes that we do need different types of assessments, 
but we can look, you can use that assessment to understand a school, for example, or understand a classroom. But again, we need to, I think one of the big points in our book is that unless the assessments, just like phonics, for example, has, uh, if it doesn't have a multilingual component, then we're inserting so much measurement error that those assessments are not really valid. So for example, the work on reading assessments, if we don't ask comprehension questions in more than one language, we're only seeing a fraction of what the child does. We're not inviting the whole child to participate in a reading assessment to understand the full span of what they can do in reading. And so if we don't have multilingual assessments, we may get a reading level, we may have some data, but there's so much error in that, that they're not an accurate picture of what students can do. And so much of the large scale assessments are like that because language is confounded with content mastery. Now, I would add that also, if we think of the teacher as professional and not as technician, then the teacher um, needs to know the children, the teacher needs to know the materials. Um, knowing the children is very complex. One has to know what interests the child, one has to um, know the reading or the writing process to know how to support the child at the right moment. And there, so we might be able to engage in data-driven assessment that are about small parts but we really think that reading and writing is very complex and that perhaps there are aspects of reading and writing that are immeasurable in terms of like a data-driven assessment. For example, what does it mean to have a strong identity as a reader and a writer? What does it mean to be a child who can talk about character development, who can talk about genre, who can talk about particular topics, who can really analyze a text critically, even a visual, to sort of think about what is it that the author is trying to say. And sometimes some of those assessments look for the surface level understanding, not those deep understandings of what it means to really engage in. You know, we really think that at the core of this work, is also being a citizen, being part of a democracy. So in that sense, reading and writing is such ethical work. Yeah, you know, Cecilia said some things that reminded me. So in our chapter on writing assessment, you know, writing assessment is less, what should I say? It's less packaged. Political? <laughs> no, it's still political, but it's less packaged than reading assessments. So reading assessments, you get a kid and you do the reading assessment. Writing assessments, there are lots of rubrics out there, but there isn't like you need to do this package and you need to do it three times a year. Maybe some schools do that, but most schools really are focusing on reading assessment. But we took it as an opportunity to really imagine what we would want in, our, in writing assessment. And there are two things that I think sing out in this chapter. One is conferencing and dialogue and relationships. So number one, getting to know the writer along multiple dimensions. And the second thing is longitudinal understandings of the child. So having these conversations and looking at the child from different angles over a length of time. And I think we were both very influenced by Pat Kearney's descriptive review of the child and the child's work. And so those two things, and this is where you see our book is layered with our histories because of the schools that we started working with, the people that we met 
and the people who influenced us who maybe were not 100% focused on the multilingual population, but we kind of uh, lived it out and thought, how do these principles like descriptive review play out within the multilingual population? How, what does it mean for us as multilingual educators? So I think that that chapter on writing assessment speaks to this whole thing of student-driven data in that the data that we're collecting is qualitative, it's conversational, it's relational, and it expands over time. Yeah, and it, teach, it really treats the teacher as a professional. And something that I always say to my students is, if I'm going to the doctor, I wouldn't want the doctor to put the data in a computer and say, you got to take this. I would want the doctor to ask me a lot more complex questions about any ailment that I'm having. So uh, how important it is for the teacher who's working with somebody even more important as a child to think very thoughtfully about that. And when we do descriptive reviews of children's work, as Lara was describing, we ask the teachers to sit with a piece of work that a child has created that is open-ended. And we just say, what do you notice? And then we go from the literal to um, noticing patterns. And then important aspects of who the person who created the piece appear. So we notice, for example, how the person might be approaching the drawing or the writing. We notice that this person might be a reader of poetry by how the child has written the text. We notice that maybe the child is using languages, um, languaging practices from home. So we have an example in one of our presentations where a child from Colombia uses a particular way of using language in that part of Colombia. And so with that idea, we sometimes teachers want to correct, for example, right away something that is misspelled or that needs a period. And instead, we're asking them to step back, to describe and to notice, and then to think very thoughtfully about what would be the next steps for the child. Thank you, Dr. Cecilia Espinosa of Lehman College and Dr. Laura Asensi Moreno of Brooklyn College. Thank you very much. Thank you, John and Amy. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank, thank you. you so much. We enjoyed it so much. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.